Okay, good evening everyone, and welcome to the, this LSE Literary Festival Poetry Reading by Fiona Sampson. Uh, my name is Richard Bronk, a visiting fellow here at the LSE, and I have just had the pleasure of chairing a session uh, across the foyer in the, uh, on tacit knowledge in, in uh, the arts, science, and business in which Fiona was a speaker. And those of you who were there will know that Fiona has a fascinating background. She was initially trained as a concert violinist and has a PhD and has written extensively on the philosophy of language. But she's best known now, I think, as an acclaimed poet, winner of the Newdigate Prize, the Chalmsey Award, various awards from the Arts Council. She's been shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes, is editor of Poem, and a professor of poetry at the University of Roehampton. There are several volumes of, um, of uh, Fiona's work outside, if you want to buy them afterwards and get her to sign them. Uh, Rough Music and Coles Hill, two volumes of poetry. Beyond the Lyric, um, uh, exploring um, po poetry um, in, in a prose work. And Music Lessons, looking at the links between music and poetry. So with a reminder to put your mobiles on silent, because this event will be podcasted, but please do tweet to your heart's content on hashtag LSE LitFest. Please join me in welcoming Fiona Sampson, who will now read from her own poetry. Thank you very much, Richard. I don't think I've ever before done a reading in which the audience have been encouraged to tweet. But that's a first for everything. I'm going to read quite a lot from this book, which is named after the village where I live. We were talking beforehand. We were trying to establish where exactly the Vale of the White Horse is. And um, I came up with the formulation that it's a euphemism for near Swindon. This is a poem about my brother, who I grew up with, but I grew up without, and so don't know very well. Um, when he comes to visit, we don't really know what to do. So what we do do, in a very English way, is take the dog for a walk. And it's called the Corn Versicles. I love paths cut through corn, through grass and meadow sweet, that clean opening, as if the path were a pattern for life, abstract and true, as if form were a truth about you. And I love to walk the new swathe where stalks start up from the exact gold dark as I reach down to touch each corn head with a fingertip. It makes me think of Helena, empress mother of Constantine, gambling on the natural justice that gods reward faithfulness. Everything good still waits in the next field. The best is yet to come, and it smells of warm earth crazed by sun, of seed heads husked against my thumb. Do you remember when we walked at Eastleach? Did you see me stoop and grow strange to myself, like the rows of wheat, like shaking bells of husk? I got asked to write Coles Hill by my publishers, who had originally hoped for a prose book. And I found it quite difficult to write, because I found it hard to write about what, in practice, is a community, it's community life. Or rather, I'd say my life in Coleshill is divided between 
community and a kind of absence of community and making oneself as invisible as one can, which one can't, in the environment. Which is another way of saying there are lots of animal poems in it. Um, and this is a roadkill poem. Um, after Ted Hughes, no one writes roadkill poems, but here's one anyway. And it's called Orphic. The vixen was a silhouette. In milk, perhaps in whelp, she trod and trod. Her mistake was forming like shadow in the muscle. At night, each thing smells sweet and full of signals. The verge plants are coarsely drawn with ink. Propped akimbo, the soiled fox seems to mouth some vast affront, her head thrown back all jaw, a long bone made to resonate, a cleated bone made to string, then pluck, the way a wheel is strung from its rim. It's a pleasure of being a poet that people think that poetry is portable, which it is, and cheap, which it is, and so they commission you. And within the commission of Coleshill, there are several commissions, and one is a set of bee poems. And everybody seems to be writing bee poems at the moment, and obviously it's because of colony collapse disorder. Um, but bees are also wonderful to write about because... They're, well, and sometimes you hear they're so quotidian, but they're also so full of resonance of various kinds. And this is a set of bee poems, um, one of which is set in London, one in Coleshill, one is about Islamic bees, one set in Slovenia, and then the last one is set in Coleshill again. Um, I think that's all I need to say. Oh, in fact, perhaps I need to say that headlands in this context are the bits of unploughed land, the strip of unploughed land at the end of the furrows in which is left for um, kind of wildlife. Songs for Paul's Bees. Swarm. Very deep, very mobile, the swarm song sounds in my chest. Not a beat, not breath but an older music, remembered as a head turns on a pillow or hips lift. One gesture becoming another in the room when a shoulder moves close, then moves away, uncovering a picture window filled with blossom streaks, pale trailers that might be rain or jet trails, but these are flowers swarming white and eager on dark branches while the airbus overhead shakes the glass. Bee song. The song rises from long grass to make a mouth between the trees, rising and opening as if it will never be done. Opens its dark mouth, breathing and rising, sound filling the space of sound, mostly secret, most necessary, trembling and calling itself out of the dark ceaselessness of itself, unendingly reforming dark in the dark and clearing between the maze, headlands and the trees, 
with the evening gathering in the long grass. B. Samar. A Samar is like an Islamic raga. If God were limitless geometry, the perfection world reaches clumsily over itself to articulate. If he could be glimpsed in the pattern of limitless addition, but were not that pattern, beautiful though the turquoises and greens of the glazed tiles are, so beautiful that the eye swoons, dropping through endless form. If God were neither principle nor dream, resting his cheek on the earth for a moment you might have imagined, a gift of pure grace from a perfection that is bodiless here and everywhere, bees could be his servants and prophets, demonstrating beauty is a kind of humility, as tonight they offer no more than the hive's aroma. The cast in August, the cast is that limestone region in Slovenia in the west, the wine-growing region. The cast in August. Bee boards bleach in the couch grass on high fields. No one goes there. No one takes the steep goat tracks past ruined farms. I remember the secret you told me and how the abandoned hulls turn nailed flanks to the sun and sink in a murmur of bees. Bees flecking the air brightly. Their hum is a rumour, an old tune. And lastly, winter bees. Every year, the weak January sun brings bumblebees nudging and thudding against the wood of my workshed, which must give out some old pine sweetness soft in the grain under the blue cracked paint, a blue miracle sky. Banal, but it moves us, a small spring resurrection in the time just before spring. What tender precision directs each bee to this recurring conversation, its compass set by the sun's contracted arc. The bee Christ wears his gilded crown of mourning for the station of the winter swarm. Out of strength, painful sweetness. Our dark hearts, our hives. Just got the proofs of um, a Chinese edition of Colesville and they've taken Our Dark Hearts, the Hives as the epigraph for the title page. So that clearly sums me up. A couple of weeks ago, I had to make my peace with the fact I used lots of Christian iconography in my poems because um, I took part in a conversation at, uh, at Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford. And I always um, skirt around the question by saying I'm a post-Christian poet. If you have a potent set of symbols, you tend to have recourse to them when you're looking to address potent topics. Well, of course, what does that mean, really? I mean, why do they speak to me? And the answer to that is, I don't yet know. Um, but here's a, here's a graveyard poem 
This is not, in a sense, a post-Christian poem, although it is a resurrection poem. It's a poem after Stanley Spencer's resurrection in Cookham Churchyard. Um, every month or so, the Tate has or used to have, uh, they used to commission a poem. And um, I thought, okay, great, lovely, I love Stanley Spencer. Um, I know what I want to write. I wrote the poem. And then I discovered that Resurrection in Cookham Churchyard, one of the masterpieces of British uh, 20th century painting, is not on display anywhere in the Tate, any of the Tates, um, which personally I think is a shocker. Probably it doesn't mean anything to you, but to me it's a shocker. Stanley Spencer became a very eccentric old man who said, um, possibly because he had a tendency not to be terribly smart, I'm on the side of angels and dirt. And this poem is called Angels and Dirt partly because the woman who commissioned it was called Angel de Hook. I couldn't resist. Angels and dirt. Bodies the colour of earth, clay-clagged or rosy pale as house brick, the broad-armed locals wrestle up. Look, they're everywhere in the stone garden, rising like hollyhocks, like fresh loaves, leavening. Here's Dennis and Paul, all neighbourly beauty. And here you are, as if for the first time, setting out bread and salt on the marble. It was no struggle, you say, this second birth, swimming up through soil which crumbles where you crown, dust from dust, but a yearning, almost like love. I think poets perhaps want not to repeat themselves. I don't want to repeat them myself. But there are themes that come up quite a lot. And one of my themes is um, this deathly theme. Um, so let me read you the corresponding poem in Coles Hill. There's a superstition, I don't know whether you know it, that you shouldn't bring, well, it's really all white flowers, but you certainly shouldn't bring hawthorn in the house because it brings death into the house. And um, last time I wrote, read this poem, I said, I'm going to read a poem about my ex, and everybody laughed. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is a poem about my ex. Um, Hawthorne milk. Your Hawthorne brings death into a house. Thorn lily runs beside the fields to meet the sky where the smell of rainwater and salt is like an opening. Chalice or drain, the mouth soft and wet. <coughs> this smell is meat, not hawthorn. The animal that turns and turns nearby is not the sea. You were a breast where I drank rusty milk that made me yours. The rust peeled from your hands and stained my skin like ochre, like blood. When you died, my skin turned black. When we danced the macabre, your skin turned white as the flowers of a northern spring, and I was your milk hope. The taste of blood in milk is like rust. The smell of death 
is like hawthorn blossom. Hawthorn stars the sky, black against daylight. Its odour is close and creaturely at night. How is it drugs can give the skin this deathly perfume of hawthorn? Familiar dark head, crowned with bright hawthorn. Your fear is so lightly, so darkly worn. There's a little set of sonnets in Coleshill. In fact, there were 14 sonnets, because 14 is a sonnet number. 14 lines make a sonnet. And some of them are conceptual, and some of them are this really happened sonnets. And I used to work as a, used to work full time as a literary editor. And um, one of the joys of being a literary editor is the hate mail you get. And um, I, I got this death threat, which I kind of didn't quite realise was a death threat when I started, when I when it first arrived. Although clearly it was. But anyway, the Metropolitan Police were certain it was a death threat, and they came and fingerprinted us all, and they fingerprinted the letter, and we thought it was going to flush out some, you know, bigot. Because um, it was racist, but unfortunately, the only people it flushed out with fingerprints of somebody in the office. So this is a death threat. But um, uh, that sense of the the bogeyman always in the shadow, that um, because I'd survived an earlier murder attempt, that sense that he's always there, and like in Ovid, he keeps changing shape. The death threat. The early dark thrums with wings, shadows scud between headlights. A window at the road's end gleams like a gaze, too long, misplaced. He changes shape. The autumn nights permit this with their mint of smells, the ash and damp notes of a dream you remember, blurred as wings flurrying into a windscreen, huge eyes, blackened by the lights because sometimes he's an owl or he's a swan or Caucasian male clean shaven age unknown or this plumed and gleaming angel at the door with a knife and I'll read you that the precursor poem to that too Crow Voodoo, it's called. A friend of mine reading this in manuscript said, you can't possibly call it Crow Voodoo, why crow? To which seems the answer seems to be, if you don't understand what the symbol of the crow is for, you don't understand very much about verse. So Crow Voodoo. A shadow passes like rain and leaves me whole again. Transforming fear, your dark presses so near it marks me. You are the knife whose blade tickled my life one day. Or you're the man holding the knife, my life in his hands. Or you're my life cut open by his knife and woken up to wonder. Stare straight and light scars the retina.
terrible having a transparent lectern. No privacy while you decide what you're going to read next. <coughs> About four years ago, um, I spent uh, some time at the, the Estonian Writers' Union house on the shore of the Baltic. Very beautiful. Russian shipmasters, 19th century wooden villa down dirt roads, you know, paved roads to the village, which is called Kazmu. And um, I wrote this poem called First Theory of Movement. I suspect movement mostly has to do with light. Flex a bare leg, like this. Panels of pallor and shadow rush to reform, slipping down the skin like blinds released against a white night. In the window, I glimpse my page turning and mistake it for a gull. Out over the bay, the birds display, wildfowl, gulls, swallows skimming the water, is so clearly delight, it makes me put down my book to catch the turns skywriting above the jetty. They call each other with tender nudges left over from long journeys. Unimaginable what they seem and how light must tug, a mineral strain flowing through their eyes into bloodstreams that race differently somehow, the way spring makes us restless. Wishes and complaints tumble together on the bed. And it is spring, this evening at the shore, where lilacs and green budge, and behind sea-facing windows, a little skin is bared. We were talking earlier about dividing our lives between London and not London. And um, for a long time I used to just commute up and down and that made my am I in London or not quite dizzying. Um, and I wrote this poem which I smuggled into Coles Hill because it's got a green in it. In fact, the green is Shepherd's Bush Green. But I didn't tell you that. It's called The Art of Fugue. A curtain brims. Its white lip appears dashing and slovenly like the girl on the tube with her bedroom hair. I miss that girl, crossing the green in heels and feather trim, whom I so nearly and never was. Oh, waking is a rising to light, something humming deep and dirty moves through a suspended life. In the dawning bedroom, the jacket on a chair back is a gesture suddenly stilled, and the girl, crossing the green, turns her head on a pillow barred with light. Come back to that fugue of meaning and, well, fleeting away meaning, really. Um, Hugo Williams still occasionally writes that wonderful column he had in the TLS Freelance, which every freelance poet used to love because, because it's very funny and because freelance life means you do things that you wouldn't elect to do. 
because you're being paid to do them. Um, and sometimes they turn out to be really amazing to change your life. And sometimes they just turn out to be very interesting. And I got booked, as I thought, to teach a poetry residential course, which happened to be at St. Biner's in North Wales, which is a seminary where Jared Manley Hopkins was unhappy but wrote amazing poems, which interested me because I'm a huge fan of Jared Manley Hopkins. When I got there, I discovered that it wasn't so much a course as a retreat, and it was for the clergy of the Anglican Diocese of St. Assas. And I learnt many things from it. One is that clergy, just like the rest of us, indulge in professional gossip behind the scenes. So this is a poem that I wrote just afterwards because one of the group were really, she was really, she was really interested in bell ringing and I love the idea of bell ringing even though I suspect it's really hard work. I like the way the changes, the, the, the idea of the, the, what changes moving, moving through the sequence. Only the change moves, as it were. And indeed, I found this entry in the Felstead database of Peels for Coles Hill Tau. I could have made this up, but I didn't. And it says... Grandsire Doubles, 25th of February, 1939. Doubles, Nine Methods, 5th of June, 1991. Surprise Minor, Seven Methods, 4th of November, 2002. Spliced Minor, 14 Methods, 20th of February, 2011. I have no idea what that means, but doesn't it sound fabulous? And the other thing I should say was that we... We were expected to not only take the Mass, but take the Mass, like take it in turns to lead the Mass, which had so many layers of irony in it. But they had been to Tesco's on the way, and they got dessert wine, which meant that it was A, the wrong colour, wasn't red, it looked like blood, and B, it was very sweet. So, the changes. Water is plasma shuddering in combination. The grass shudders, the bluebells are a shuddering haze, and your blood is honey. It stays in the mouth like guilt, rumour, grief, a necessary meal. I'm afraid of the untouched body, silence, the priest waiting in the garden. Your blood is honey, it fills the mouth like guilt, rumour, grief, a necessary meal. But what's nearer or more real than the sweetness in the vein, that sticky dew? Will the freshet in the cup rinse away the taste of lamb and salt, oil and rosemary? Elected silence stirs, as if to say, before you were, I am. Local, huge, it's full of the milkiness of wings, rain night, the susurration of hungers. Your blood is honey, stays in the mouth like guilt, shame, grief, those necessary meals. Once again, the prayer room with its milky light, its private, pragmatic silence. Your blood is honey. It stays in the mouth like guilt, rumour, grief. Their sweet and salt is to be eaten here among red armchairs in the odour of new carpet. To be eaten now. Is it right to be the lamb who must trust the shepherd, which is to say death? 
Your blood is honey. The priest smokes a cigarette among the shadows in the silent garden. Lives of the saints under his arm. Guilt, rumour, grief. Look how they break from the vein into the surgeon's cup. Maybe do something more cheerful now. This is uh, another sonnet called Conception. This is a This Really Happened sonnet, well it is at the beginning anyway, because I do work in a writing shed, a hut. Conception. The small cat inside the hut, looking out of the door's glass at the dog scratching that door, places her paws together with unconscious care on the blue square of the mat. Grace is a secret clockwork, she seems to say, which is true. We'll never arrive at that truth. I mean, we can never undress right down to how we were in our conceptions, new caress, when the membrane spilled the dreaming yoke, when self first broke and entered self. And here's another of those creaturely poems. Dear Middle East, Middle East's farm. Kind of optical illusion because um, sometimes you're looking and the field seems to be moving over itself and it's deer or hare running across the cloud field. I've just given away the poem. Dear at Middle East. The deer racing across a field of the same corp and tallow they are, if they are, because they could be tricks of the light, must sense themselves being poured and pouring through life. We tremble, feeling everything's in motion. That feeling goes to and fro in the world that shivers round us. World too is something poured and endlessly pouring itself. February shakes the fields, trembles in each hazy willow. Now facing that, I have um, one of the few people poems in Colson. This is a really real, this really happened poem too. There's a bloke called Day Freeman who works in Hannington and if you have a very old Peugeot, as I used to, you need to know about him. He performs miracles. Dave and his holy mountain. Drive up Hannington Yards, past the cars without wheels, without doors, all extravagantly rusted. You imagine fireweed, but the scrap sprouts meadowsweet, and there are larks ceaseless overhead, and the threadbare cats squalling and climbing over the stacked cars. His voice, in the naming of parts, is Tolerant Wiltshire. And watching him is like watching a surgeon to whom you might give over some sick limb or a bandaged head. You trust his expert touch, seeing with what gaffer's care from beneath its chassis he gentles a spanner into the works of the jacked-up Land Rover. 
Of course, I don't drive a Land Rover, but somehow I put in Peugeot 206 at the bottom. <laughs> I'm going to read you one long poem and one short to finish. <coughs> the long poem is really long, um, and I don't normally read it, but I feel that you're a university audience, so you might cope with it. And um, it's about, it's back in Estonia, it's at Klasman, and um, normally I think I say what the quotes are. No, I think it's probably all transparent. It goes over two pages, so I hope you're sitting really comfortably. And they're looking at the chairs, you probably are. At Kazmu. I have to say, this is probably the most autobiographical poem I've ever written. At Kazmu. The light hardly seems to move clusters at the window as a frieze of trees on mineral blue, which might shift. But this isn't the tentative west, stippled watercolour and nuance in light and speech. Instead, a hooded crow sways the tip of a pine so it catches the sun, gold, pink, gold. And below it, the desk gleams while I drink my coffee and wonder how to phrase this problem, this matter of dwelling, or more precisely of not dwelling, for what's in question is how to inhabit an identity, a place, fully, which for Heidegger meant without reflection, costly blindness. And 70 years on, at a desk in a room of grey panelling and marine light, on the shore of a country marred by occupations, Russian, German, I see we still don't know how to express the I, solace, the I into which all experience flows. For surely a group has neither sense nor senses. Or to try it another way as evening cools outside the open window. Why should I finally face the problem of identity on this Baltic peninsula, surrounded by an unknown language, sweet as bird call? What's displaced is abjured, a Freudian rejection, like those Christmas cards we leave too late to post. I'm reminded of a family snap, the child squinting and camera-shy in her NHS glasses. So this here-there game of frequent traveller is only fancy dress, an incognito. Driving here, Marx said of the Soviet era, we learnt to be liars. The dust road tipped away, and our imagined skid sketched a second route through the dusk the way we're tracked by that second life we don't lead. Like bad conscience, dreams of murder or of choking, longing for what might have been is a tracer of moving light behind each act. Is this line? Here I interrupt myself to fiddle with the curtain. Existentially, such a split is bad faith, but it's how we live, isn't it? Draw the curtain and path, pines and painted villas disappear, but they could all be here, and my hand on the scene makes that difference. 
Imagine from outside, when I stroll the lane, the room swells as if in a convex lens, the very model of feminine resourcefulness. Its wood panels are like pleats, all dove-grey serenity. When I was a child, I was in love with my feminine mother. She hoisted me up and let me play with her glass necklace. Each facet was a prism, but behind the colour was the volume of glass itself. Ugly pretty. It seemed a trick I couldn't grasp. When we had to be fairies, I refused. I wanted proper lessons. Only colouring was allowed, so I coloured the table in my fury to be, not to be a girl. Behind the school incinerator, I pulled the pink ribbons out of my hair. Now, walking down to the beach beyond the trees, I'm still practising. Neither alpha femme nor dyke, but as it were, entre deux guerres. The body writes white, say the French women. Well, or smudges, like a moving hand. So what's ink and what white paper gets dimly diffuse like this evening light and shade. I'm a visitor here. So are these eight, nine, wild swans gliding out of the shining water towards the jetty. Look how each bird's double reflected beneath it completes the fraction. A silvered surface and underneath weeds pale as milk. Metaphor, perhaps, for how, though I dream of something fixed, history completes me, too, and I dwell on water, that endlessly adapting ground whose instinct is motion. The human earth floats on it, like the saucer in myth. After a pause, I change motion to revision. People who have minds can change them, my father used to say. I love whatever changes. And I'm going to finish with a sonnet called Tremor. Because uh, uh, when I went through some bad times recently, I developed this terrifying tremor, which seems to have gone away. Tremor. And this is a This Really Happened poem too. The plumbing expert really did say this. Tremor. The metals of the pipes do not agree and iron is the sacrificial anode, is what the landlord's plumbing expert said when he called today. And here comes a host of small exchanges as if from the electric world. Pulses, tremors of antimony, tremors under your skin at night. Something is adjusting, or anyway, changing. Iron pipes and copper pipes at war. A high-pitched shiver thrills the plumbing. The house, the whole world is shaking. If you're not dead, you're doing all right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fiona Sampson, for that wonderful gift of 
um, imagination. And I'll just remind you that uh, Fiona's books are on sale outside. And thank you all very much for coming tonight. <laughs>